episode 3391 of the Survival Podcast, and today we're going to do something that we probably don't do enough of, go back to the fundamentals. Uh, I remember a lot of different things I did in my life, different sports teams and stuff like that, where you might have a really bad game or a really bad practice, and then, you know, you got chewed out by the coach with the next practice, and everybody take a knee type thing, and Man, today we're going to work on the fundamentals. And if you were doing, you know, soccer, you'd go back to basic passing and things like that, basic forms, formations and stuff. If it's football, you know, depending on your position and what you're doing, defense, offense, you would you would work on these specific fundamentals. And you could be playing at a high school level and you're doing shit that you did when you were in Pop Warner. And there's a reason for that. And it's a very important thing because it screws a lot of stuff up. The, the fundamental underlying principles have to be accurate or anything you do building on them like the foundation of a building is doomed to fail. And, and, and this is like even in science, like this is the case. Like if you have a fundamental error in an assumption within a model for something like climate, then no matter how advanced the scientists are using it, no matter how advanced the computers are using it, no matter how fast the computers are using it, the, the, the result is doomed to fail. In fact, the more power and energy and resources, the, the faster and more spectacular the failure. Well, when it comes to preparedness, it works the same way. And it, it is a, there's a constant in life that this works out this way. And what I mean by that is if you are, you know, we're going to talk about very basic preparedness mindsets today. And it's actually pretty advanced, even though, you know, based on what we've been doing for 15 years, it's, it's kind of the basics and the fundamentals. But if you don't anchor down these things and you're a doomsday prepper and you're preparing for the end of the world, and that means you have a place to run away and hide in the bush at with a bunch of beans, bullets and band-aids put away, you're not going to do well with the recession that's about to happen soon. When? I don't know, but soon. Right? There's going to be a significant recession soon. Soon could be a year, soon could be two and a half, three years. But that's a way on the outside of when we're going to kind of have come to Jesus with what's going on right now. Or you have a massive storm in your neighborhood that rips the roof off of your house and things like that. All of these things that people do or dream about doing more often, or talk about doing rather than do, this doomsday prepper nonsense, extreme shit, it leaves out all these fundamentals. And that means that most of what will go wrong, not might, but will go wrong in your life, you're not prepared for. And how somebody can think that they're prepared to deal with a global thermal nuclear war, or uh, an EMP, or a CME, or something like that, when they ain't prepared to deal with losing their job, I don't know. But it's very common in the space. And those watching the video, look down below. I don't know if Eka Mouse is here yet. But if you are watching the video, whether live or the pre-recorded version of it later on, 
please smash that like, hit subscribe and notify so that uh, it helps us out in reaching more people on YouTube. All right, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. How about you take back control of your digital sovereignty? Start9 can help you do just that. You can do, you know, kind of cool stuff like run a Bitcoin node or a Bitcoin lightning node. That's all well and good. You can also do and set up end-to-end encrypted messaging. You can have access to your files from anywhere in the world fully encrypted uh, using your own computer hardware, your own apps, your own infrastructure instead of somebody else's. You can get off the cloud. If you are using the cloud, you are not using the cloud. There is no cloud. The cloud does not exist. It is a figment of your imagination. It is a marketing term and nothing more. All the cloud means is your data is on somebody else's computer, meaning they control it, and you're trusting them to make sure you can always access it, and you're trusting them to make sure it's not you know, made accessible to people you don't want to have it. Don't do that. You can take complete control of your digital sovereignty with Start9, and you can get a discount of 9% off all embassy servers if you're a member of the MSB. Next up today, and I just like to always run these guys together because they fit together so nicely, Above Phone, where you can take back your tech. Once you take back your digital sovereignty with your networking, how about you take back the technology that you walk around with with that mobile device all over the place, with all those apps that spy on you, with the providers uh, spying on you, and the manufacturer of the phone itself spying on you, Apple, the carriers, all the apps, everybody's spying on you. Everybody's recording your information. And you have to deal with censorship on top of it all. So in exchange... For them taking all your personal private data away from you, you get to have them censor what you're allowed to do and see and function with. It doesn't have to be that way. Check out Above Phone, and remember, if you want to get an Above Phone, MSB is covered for a year and a half just with the uh, discount for Above Phone. 75 bucks off any of the phones at AbovePhone.com uh, with the discount code that is in the MSB. All right. Now, one more thing real quick, and I just want to be real quick with this one. Just a reminder, I'm going to be gone. I am leaving Friday. I won't be back until Tuesday. And while I'm gone, I'm going to be in Camden, Tennessee with the Self-Reliance Festival. John Willis and Nicole Sauce are throwing this shindig. It's going to be awesome. I assume if you are coming in real life, you've gotten your tickets long ago. But if you've wanted to come but you just can't get up there, Check it out. You can get a virtual pass for the Self-Reliance Festival. They're available now. Recordings of all the presentations, et cetera. You can even interact with us. So check that out. And please consider coming to uh, Camden if you can. And if not, again, get that virtual pass. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into this. And, uh, again, this is a fundamental episode. And this is going to go back to some of the earliest work I did in the preparedness space. Uh, starting out with kind of the fundamental, not, not what to do, but the fundamental mindset that I approached everything that we teach with from the very beginning. So when I started the Survival Podcast, I wanted to have some things that were unique. Now, they wouldn't be that no one ever thought of anything like it before, because then it would be, well, nonsense, because humans have been preparing for disaster for as long as humans 
have you know applied their their prefrontal cortex to looking to the future and saying, hey, what can go wrong? So I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but I wanted a fundamental way of presenting the information that would be unique. And I wanted something to hang everything on. And that became modern survivalism. So back in 2008, when I had done no episodes of the show, and I wanted to figure out what was going to be kind of my brand, what was it going to be based on, I started thinking of all these different mindset things. And I started thinking about what I wanted to teach. And I realized, like, do I think it's a good idea that you learn how to use a map and a compass to orient yourself and navigate? Yeah. Does that mean I think we should throw away GPSs? No. You see what I'm saying? Like, do I think it's a good idea to know how to make a friction fire? Yes. Does that mean I think you should throw away your Bic lighters, your Ferrisium rods, your blowtorch? No. Right? I believe that we use all the technology that humans have developed, but we always need to have redundancies and backups. And the term I came up with that was modern survivalism, and that a person who was following the modern, modern survival mindset would be a modern survivalist. So I went to Google, and if you don't know this, there's a thing called Boolean search, which means there's different things you can do to manipulate search results. And one thing you can do is really like the most simple thing is put quotation marks around a phrase. So you would quote modern survival and quote search. And if you do that, it will only find results that have that exact phrase that way. It could be a whole sentence. And when I did that with modern survival and modern survivalist, I saw no instances at all of it, except for things like the sentence would end with modern and then begin with survival. Right. But there was no such thing as that. So I built that and then I decided, well, then we need to have like I really like threes when it comes to presentations. And there, there would be three things that would encompass what the modern survival mindset was. And they were threat probability, disaster impact, and the inverse ratio of those two things. And everything comes off of that. That's why I'm going back to it 15 years in the future. And I'm going back to that because everything we teach is based on that. So what is threat probability? Threat probability is how likely is it that you'll see this disaster and have to deal with it in your life. And what everybody thinks when they hear this, the concept of disaster, survivalism, preparedness is something that you make a movie about. A giant comet hitting the planet like Thor's hammer and annihilating the planet and ending all life. Guess what? You're not going to be prepared for that. If it's a smaller one, then some of the things we're going to talk about may help you. And Gooley, thank you for the super chat. I really appreciate that. Um, but yeah, like, you know, did Hollywood make a movie about it? No, then we're probably not going to think about it right out of the gate. And so Hollywood makes movies about things that affects the whole world. That's that's what sells. Blood and guts sells like a movie like Armageddon or something like that. Right. But when I looked at it, I thought to myself, what are disasters that happen that have happened to me? And like having my car totaled at one point in my life was a disaster. I recovered from it, but it was a disaster. Uh, having uh, severe damage done to my home was a disaster from a storm when I was a kid. And I mean, we had like the whole front of the porch caved in and like it was this awesome storm that hit us uh, where we lived in Florida. And it was 
you know, I didn't really realize it was a disaster because I was a kid, so somebody else took care of it. But I thought, like, that happens. And I thought about all the things that I've seen happen to people around me, even if it didn't happen to me. And I thought, you know, what one time I lost a job. And because of who I was and the connections I had, it ended up not being a big deal. But I thought there, David says right there, losing a job. Sync, right? Synchronicity right there. Um, if I hadn't had the connections I had, if I if I hadn't been able to pick up a phone and call a personal recruiter, which is part of a preparedness plan, but I didn't know it was part of a preparedness plan at that point. I just had the connection and I used it. Wouldn't that might not be a good idea? And what I realized is the less number of people affected by a disaster, the higher the probability that any individual would experience it. So most people, you either have lost a job or you know someone who's lost a job, right? You have had an accident that put your vehicle completely out of commission or you know somebody that has. You've had a very serious illness in your immediate family that, that crippled the family for a time or you know somebody that had. But you probably haven't seen a global thermal nuclear war and God willing, we won't. And I wouldn't tell you that. You know, the odds of that haven't gone up recently because they have, but it's still a pretty unlikely scenario. So the threat probability matrix is simply that the most mundane, everyday, individual disasters are where you start your preparedness. Not where you finish, but where you start. Because if you can't deal with a job loss, if you can't deal with your vehicle being put out of commission, you're not going to deal with the end of the world as we know it. So that moves us to... The objection being, yeah, but Jack, if we get hit by an asteroid, we're really in deep shit. Okay, that is the impact scale. So when we look at a disaster, we have to say, how bad is it if this happens? And a lot of disasters that we could design our lives to deal with because they're not, quote, unquote, that bad. In other words, we don't die. And there's resources around us that we can rely on to help us when a family member gets sick family, friends, community, church, help out, right? So since we know there is support available, we tend to not worry about them. So that's why we start preparing for them. But then as the severity of the disaster and the total number of people impacted go up, our ability to deal with the fallout goes down. It goes down. And what I mean by that is if we, if we have a, a, a tornado here in Texas, uh, unless it's some kind of like F six and a half, like doomsday tornado, it's probably no matter how bad it is, no matter how many people it kills, it's not shutting down Dallas Fort Worth. There's 6.2 million people here. It's a huge it encompasses two counties. It's not even just Dallas and Fort Worth. There's dozens of other cities and towns that are part of what's known as the Metroplex. So even some of the worst tornadoes we had. You know, maybe it messed up a couple neighborhoods or something like that. But even if you lived there and the store you usually shopped at was ripped apart and your house was torn apart and whatever, you can still go outside the impact zone as long as your car still runs or you can rent a car or have a friend with a car. You can get shit. But the bigger that impact is, whether it is the impact of a natural event if it's the impact of a stupid government locking down society over a bad cold, right? The bigger the area, 
the less you can rely on resources that are available. And the COVID came a few years ago and people said, Jack, did this mess up your inverse relationship? And the answer is no, because I never said that the big one couldn't happen. But the reality is the big one didn't happen. There was nobody that couldn't get food during the COVID if they had money to buy food with. You could go. There were resources available. You weren't actually cut off. Now, let's just retool this and make the COVID one of these actual global disasters beyond government-caused disasters. If COVID had had a death rate of, let's say, 10% instead of less than one, a real infection fatality rate of 10%, it would have probably had a hospitalization rate somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40% if it was that high. Then you would have seen this type of disaster. Then you would have seen shit go crazy everywhere. But to get ready for that, you have to get ready for the mundane before you're ready for the insane. Yeah? The way I've always explained it is when I'm teaching somebody how to set up a business, they're like, I want to make $100,000 a year. Okay, let's figure out how to make you $100 this week or this month. Well, I want to make $100,000. You're going to have to make your first dollar before you make your first 10, before you make your first 100. Or you make your first thousand, so hundreds a reasonable number for your first actual profit. Let's do that. And then we can replicate that. And then we can replicate it again. And in no time at all, we can get you up to making $10,000 a month. That's $120,000 a year. There's your goal. But we got to make the beginning first. That's how preparedness works with this mindset. And then the third tenet of that is the inverse relationship. The more severe the disaster the less probability you'll experience it, and the more mundane the disaster, the higher probability an individual will experience it. And to get ready for this, we we need to shore up six primary survival needs. Now, I'm big on having preparedness for wants, too, but these six categories are needs. In other words, if you do without them for long enough in the wrong situation, you will die. That's the definition of a need in my world. So the first category of that, and, and before I go with this, there's five survival needs that you'll learn if you take like a bushcraft survival course, not six. I added a sixth because we're not in the woods and you can't just shit wherever you want and kick dirt on top of it. So I added health and sanitation. I also made a modification and I'll go through them. What I did is I changed fire to energy. And there's a simple reason for that. The reason that fire is a wilderness survival need, it is a form of energy. With fire, I can make tools. I can keep myself warm. I can cook food. I can provide light. I can signal for help. And there's a ton of other things that I can do. All because it is a form of energy. And in the wilderness, you're not going to have a lot of other options for energy. You're not going to fabricate a freaking generator out of acorns and a seashell. Right. But you can make fire. But at home, we have other forms of energy that we can create redundancy for. So the five that became six are food, water, shelter, security, energy, health and sanitation. And let's go through. them. What do we do about food? Simple, easiest thing to do. Get your ass a notebook or some notebook paper or some paper off your printer and staple it together and throw it on the counter. But notebooks are a great thing. Little 66-cent composition book, something like that. 
because you can do other things with it because you're only going to need a little bit of it for this first thing. I want you to journal your food consumption. Everybody says eat what you store and store what you eat, but no one I know teaches, and maybe they do now, but I mean, I haven't seen anybody in 15 years, the concept of journaling your food consumption. How are you going to eat what you, you store, what you eat, and eat what you store if you're not absolutely sure what you eat? And I think most people think they know, but do you really? Because most people, I can go into your house and open your cupboard, your pantry, whatever, and I can start digging through there, and I'm going to find shit that's in there that's been expired for two years, and you haven't noticed it, and you haven't thrown it away, and you're never going to eat it, and you think you eat it. That's why you bought it. Well, when you start prepping, that problem, if that's what it, if it is a problem, can become magnified. You can really do this. You can go up to your uh, closet upstairs one day. You can open the door and think, look at all this food I have, and you can go through it, and you can find, like, it's all long past expired. And it's probably not going to kill you to eat it, but, you know, what happens is texture, flavor, nutritional value, et cetera, all declines in canned foods, et cetera, over time. So all you do is you take that book and you put it on your countertop with no judgment. Don't lie to yourself. You can, you want to bullshit people, that's fine. Don't bullshit yourself. Bullshitting yourself is like bullshitting your lawyer. You don't do it. You need the facts. So every time you or anybody in your household eats a thing, you just write it down in the journal, what it was, how much it was. Not dollar doesn't really matter. You can do that if you want to. But I mean like one can of, right, one box of, one package of, one bunch of. And you do that for about two to four weeks. And every time you go to write something down, if you're like, I already wrote that down, then go back to where you previously wrote it down. This is not about scheduling. This is about inventory development. Put a star, an X, a mark, a plus sign, whatever, a check mark, whatever you want to use next to it. So if you, for instance, use Wolf Brand Chili, I don't recommend it. They've really ruined it. It used to be pretty good. Now it's complete garbage. But Wolf Brand Chili, this, you like it, so you bought a can of it. It's not my place to judge you. You need to store what you eat. So you use a can, and next week you use another can. Don't write it down again. Put that mark next to it. After about four weeks of that, take your list and look at it. You're going to find that there's actually a core of things that you really use on an ongoing basis very frequently. That's where you start. And whatever it is, let's go back to Wolf Chili. If you realize that you buy about two cans of Wolf Chili a month, buy four or six, something like that, and put it in your pantry and start treating your pantry the way a grocery store stock boy treats the grocery store. Put the new stuff in the back and the old stuff in the front. So you draw from the front and front your merchandise, right? Very simple. And you do that until you have two weeks worth of that food. Now you have a journal and you know how much you use every two weeks because now you know, you don't think, you know, and you can keep running this journal as you're developing your pantry. And once you get two weeks of a particular item, stop it. Go back to buying the exact amount that you would normally buy if you weren't doing this and pick another item or two or three and do it with that item and go through all of the items that you regularly use until you have two weeks of extra of that item. If it's something you only use a couple times a month, 
then start branching out to those items. But once you get two weeks worth of all your regular use items, all you have to do is do it again. And when you do it again, I mean, just basically start over and do it again, you'll have one month, four weeks worth of those items. Now, do it one more time. Double it again. Do what you did to get to one month again. You'll have 60 days. 60 days is a magic number. 60 days of the most common things that you use in your home for food will get you through 90% of what can go wrong. It would have gotten you through any of the concerns over the COVIDs. You guys are freaking out. I'm trying to buy wheat berries, right? They're in the middle of the COVIDs. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is like, when COVID started, I was like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm like, this was all so easy to do for so long. Now it's hard. This is the time to prepare while it's easy. So you get yourself to 60 days, you are in great shape. If you want to do more than that, God bless you, go forth and do so. But I think that as you're getting the fundamentals set up, 60 days is plenty. And you can do this. It'll take you the better part of a year for most people. You can do it with a reluctant spouse. They won't even know you did it. They'll have no idea. Oh, we have a lot of stuff in here. Yep, we sure do. That's right, honey. Go get some more. Here's your list. Go to the store, honey. Get some more food. Real simple. And then as you're doing that, I recommend everybody to some level, and there's discussion going on in the live chat here about this, become a producer. Do something. Put in a square foot garden. Put in a simple hydroponic system. Do something. Start figuring out where you can gather and forage local food. I know some places around here. I see people just collecting buckets. I mean, five-gallon buckets full of pecans. There's some parks and there's like some uh, like office areas and stuff like that where they've just put pecans in as a landscaping tree. And no one gives a shit. If nobody picks it up, it's all going to rot or the squirrels are going to eat them. Or they're going to sprout and get mowed down by the landscapers or whatever. And so you can go... Um, out and just collect food, hunting, fishing, foraging, gardening, some level become a producer, learn to preserve food. Once you know how to preserve food, you can go down the farmer's market at the end of the season. And instead of growing your own green beans, you can, sometimes you can buy like a bushel of freaking green beans for almost nothing because people are trying to get rid of it at the end of the season before it goes off. Then you can go home and freeze dry it or uh, dehydrate it or flash freeze it or whatever you want to do. But learn to be a producer of some level. That's it. That's your fundamental core food. Now, I know a lot of you have been listening a long time. You're like, there's so much more. Yeah, fundamentals, right? We're not worried about the wacky trick play. You are alignment. You need to know how to block, Right? You are a quarterback. You need to get your hand off right before you worry about that 40-yard, 50-yard bomb. Fundamentals. This is the fu- that's the that's it. If most of America did that alone, we'd be better off as a society. Next is water. Water is life. No water, dead. About two days to three days is about how long you're gonna make it without water. In many instances, that number is far less. They say, no, no, the book says you can go two days without water. Okay. You ever see somebody in the summer pass out in the middle of a field? You think they drank water that day? They probably did. So exertion, heat, lots of things can dehydrate you. So we know we need water. My number one recommendation for storing water is very simple. You have water 
that for all intents and purposes, as cheap as it is, no matter where you live, is free. It comes out of a faucet. The only problem you have is one day you might turn that faucet on, it goes drip, 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 and you don't get no more. But while that's available, we don't need to go to the store and buy water. Don't need it. Soda bottles or heavy jugs like Arizona iced tea or apple juice jugs or something like that. If you don't drink that crap, good for you. I bet you you know somebody in your family, friend, community who does. Can you save them for me? And you should target saving somewhere between 40 to 60 gallons minimum of water in soda bottles, two-liter bottles, or the jugs. Why those uh, implements? One, I don't believe in paying for things you can get for free. You can get them for free, so don't go buy water bricks or some bullshit for 40 bucks a piece, some of this shit, to hold two gallons of water when you can get one gallon, two liter, one liter, whatever, for free. Number two, they're food grade, so you don't need to worry about that. Number three, they're designed to hold things under pressure with high acid. So carbonic acid in soda, citric acid in a lot of fruit things and stuff like that. So they are very durable, rugged bottles. We have bottles that are eight years old now that are still fine. You save them, you rinse them out, put a little bit of bleach in them when you rinse them out. This is what I do, okay? I fill the bottle up just one time, fill it all the way up and just dump it out. I fill it back up. I put a little bit of bleach in it. I put the lid on it. You could use peroxide as well. I take that bottle and I stick it out in the sun for a day or two. I bring it in. I rinse it out. I put it upside down. I let it drain. I want all of the bleach smell to go away. Then I fill it up, put the lid on it, stick it on the shelf. That is all. There is nothing is going to spoil in your water. There is nothing in your water. There is no food for bacteria in your water. If your water you put in the bottle is not safe six months from now, it wasn't safe when you put it in the bottle. Don't make this hard. You know, don't don't go don't go out there trying to get dehydrated water that you have to add water to to rehydrate, right? That's an empty bottle. It's a joke if you didn't get it, right? Water in the bottle, done. And then use that water from time to time to rotate it so it doesn't get kind of that flat, stale thing going on. That's it. Now, the other thing is, now you're probably storing food in freezers. And if you have gotten into any of the other stuff we talk about, you probably have at least two refrigerator freezers or like a dedicated deep freezer. And it's probably not 100% full at all times. Any space in your freezer that you have that doesn't have food in it, stick a bottle in there. If your freezer goes out, your food will stay cold, frozen, and cool enough to continue to use longer. You know? You, you, how, how about this technology? How many of you guys would love to have in your home to help keep your food safe if the power goes out? An isothermic battery. Yeah, you can have one. It's a bottle of frozen water in your freezer. That's an isothermic battery. The other side of it is if you need water, you take it out and it defrosts and you have water. It's multitasking. So there's your that's 90 percent of your need for water. Um, learn to make your water safe to drink, filter, boil, et cetera. Here's a couple things. One, I know Berkey's dealing with the government right now. You can still get their stuff. That is the, that is the water filter I recommend. No, Jeff is not a sponsor anymore. I don't care. Uh, I still recommend him and I still recommend Berkey and I don't care what the government says and it's nonsense and I'm not going to get into it today. But some good mechanical filtration you should have in your home for your water. 
be warned if you have something like a whole whole house system or something like that that runs on power that needs power to operate you could have water pressure but not the power to run your filtration so it's good to have a backup to the backup of filtration as well um but also on boiling Every time I hear some so-called expert talk about boiling water for 10 minutes, there's something I want to do. Smack the living shit out of them because they're not an expert and they shouldn't talk to people and they shouldn't pretend that they know what they're doing because they don't. You do not need to boil water for 10 minutes. That is the most asinine pile of bullshit you have ever heard in your life. If you hold water at 180 degrees for 20 minutes, it will pasteurize as well as boiling the shit out of it. Why is that important? Because water takes time to move from 180 degrees to 212 degrees. Significant time. Okay? And every degree it goes up, the amount of time that water needs to fully pasteurize and be safe to drink goes down. So the time you hit 180, you begin the pasteurization process, 181, 182, 183, 184. It is inconceivable and impossible. You can get water to 212 degrees, and by the time you've gotten there, you haven't already pasteurized it. And I've had people, because there's people that are just like those weirdos at, like, sci-fi fairs, like, that are asking some actor who's been retired for 25 years, in episode three, you said this, but in episode 19, you said that. Please explain. Like, that kind of shit. What if you're using a jet boil, and it gets there so fast Okay, are you going to drink 212-degree water? No, shut the fuck up. Okay, shut the fuck up. Don't talk when adults are talking. You're not qualified to be in this conversation. The time it takes for that shit to cool down to the point where you can actually consume it, it is going to be okay. So boiling water, why is this important? We're going to talk about energy, and energy should only be expended on ration as much as necessary to do a job. The second that water starts to boil, it's safe. Just know that. It can save you money. And it can save, I'm sorry, it can save you energy and that can save your life. It can certainly make you more comfortable and make your energy last longer to know that. So one second of boiling is more than enough for water. Um, the other thing on water is... You need to understand that some things can't be taken care of with boiling. Well, your boiling book says the book is wrong, or you didn't read the book right. Here's what I mean. If you have something like radioactive particles, if you have inorganic minerals, right, that are in there that are toxic levels, all boiling does is create evaporation and solids and minerals and elements remain behind, and you actually increase the concentration. So that's why there's a place for boiling and for filtering both, because you don't know what you might be dealing with in any individual situation. And then I really recommend, once you get that basic water storage down, consider going larger scale, rain catchment, things like that, poly tanks, uh, IBCs, what have you. Whether you do rain catchment or you just simply set it up, in a place where it's not going to go bad on you, because the big thing there is algae and things like that from sunlight. But I've seen people do things like string together 10 IBCs. That's 3,000 gallons, by the way, uh, somewhere around that, because it could be 270s or 330s, I think, are the size, but somewhere around 3,000 gallons. Pull them all together, all on the same level, garden hose in one side, garden hose out the other side, 
And when they water, they just simply move water through the IBCs. And that way the water's always rotated, doesn't get stale. And they always have that water on reserve. So I don't care how you do it, but getting to a larger reserve of water, if you can, good idea. But at least 40 to 60 gallons of water, soda bottles, iced tea jugs, whatever. And there's a big reason for that. And that's because water's heavy. And anybody, a kid, can carry a one-gallon jug of water. It can go with you. It can be moved around. It can be refilled. It can become part of your life. I want this stuff to be part of your life even when times are not tough. So that's what we use. Like, we will end up going through almost all of our stored water. In fact, we'll go through all of it easily at our workshop. Just from drinking water that goes in the jugs for people and making coffee. We'll go through every drop of it, and it'll get completely refilled. But we use it all the time anyway. We'll fill up the dog's dish with the water, fill the jugs back up, put them on the shelf, take the new jugs out. That'll fill the dog's water next time and constantly be rotated. So one way to develop this into your life. And it is so easy to store water. I don't know why everybody isn't doing it. The fact that people panic during hurricanes and run out and buy six cases of water from Best Buy and then complain that they paid a dollar fifty a bottle for water from a store that doesn't want to sell you water by the case is asinine. We live in a place with basically free, clean water brought to our house all the time. The Lewis Black, a comedian, I remember listening to him before I even started this show, doing a comedy routine. Going, Only in America would there be a place where, like, free, clean water comes to your tap. And you're like, no, fuck that. I'm going to go pay $9 for a bottle of water. You know how Lewis Black is if you know who I'm talking about. Um, definitely. All right, moving on. Let's talk about shelter. <sighs> This is one that gets overlooked because unless you're homeless, I got a shelter. Well, things happen to shelters like you have to leave or roofs get ripped off. And this is the way we need to think. Like having a bug out location, great idea. I'm going to call that an advanced strategy. It takes significant financial resources to maintain a second place that you can just go move into and live at in comfort. It's a great idea. But it, I'm going to be, you know, it, this is not, that's not a fundamental. That's an advanced strategy. So with shelter, one of the things you need is if something goes wrong, a place you can go to that you can count on, whether this is an exchange agreement with a family member, uh, whether this is uh, a plan to live as a camper for a while or whatever, one way you need some place that you can go that you can absolutely count on. You need a well, thought out evacuation plan. Let me explain what a well thought out evacuation plan is. It is not, we will drive up interstate 81 to my sisters. That is a poorly planned evacuation plan because you don't know that you're going to be able to go to your sisters. You don't know that you're going to be able to use interstate 81. You don't know any of that. That's the whole point. We can't know the unknown. So what do we need? We need three places we can go. And we need three different routes to get to each of those three locations. We need that. That's, that is a minimum of your evacuation. If you tell me you have that, I'm like, you have a well-thought-out evacuation plan. There's a show that I did. If you just go to the site, the survivalpodcast.com, and type in documentation. I've done it as rewinds a couple times, too. I did it back when like, the, the, number was, the show was 100 and something. And I go through exactly how to put all of this into a documentation package. But one of the things in there is you should have printouts of maps off Google Maps or whatever with 
the three different routes to the three different locations in like a three ring binder, boom, locked up. There should be one in both of your cars and one in your house. And if you have kids that are old enough to drive, they should have one too, plus the rest of the documentation that I won't get into today. Along each of those routes, each of the three routes to each of the three locations should have three rally points. These are places like fast food places you can stop, right? A rest stop, whatever. Some place you can pull your car into and wait a little bit and you won't get yelled at in most situations. That's why we need three because they're not always most situations. At that location, that way if you're here and your significant other's here and one of you is home and the other one's not going to go home and you're going to go to rally point, you know, you're going to go to location alpha, which is your Aunt Sue's, and then you can meet at, at, at rally point one. Yeah. And if you get to rally point one and you can't stay there, you go to rally point two. And if you can't stay there, you go to rally point three. And if you can't stay there, you go all the way on to the destination. Because why wouldn't you be able to stay there? Because martial law has been declared and they're like, move along, move along. Officer Schultz, kick his ass. He didn't move along. I'll do what I want. Boom. Now you're in prison, jail, whatever. Beat the shit, sprayed, bit by a dog in the back of a paddy wagon, and you can't help your family. And the reason, why would you do that? Because you didn't have a plan of where to go next. Once you have a plan of where to go next, move along, okay. If you have any comms available, you let your other party know. Rally point one is a bust. Go to two. What if you just have to go? I recommend you have some sort of dead drop dummy marker device, something that would be seen as a piece of trash that would be left alone, uh, Pringles can with a piece of green tape around it, whatever it is for you, you get to a place and for whatever reason you have to move on, you just leave it somewhere that would be visible. Your counterparty gets there, sees it, and just immediately goes whether they can get in touch with you or not. That's a well-thought-out documenta- uh, 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 evacuation plan. Anything short of that is not well-thought-out. Trust me, I sat and I thought about this. In fact, tomorrow's episode on expert counsel I'm going to be doing um, a question for hunting in Colorado. And part of my answer is I'm going to start at the end. You've just killed a deer. Now what? How did we get there? And what do we do next? And that's how I've thought about this. I'm evacuating. Now what? I've made it to my rally point. The other person's not there. Now what? I've been into my rally point, and some dude that looks like he spends 19 hours a day in the gym is starting to kick my ass if I don't leave, and he has a dog and a gun and five other guys like him, and pepper spray. Now what? That's how you get this kind of planning done. You think about the end the and the middle and how we get from each point. And if you don't do that, you don't get a complete plan. Now, all that said, for evacuation, you know what I want you to do if you can? I want you to stay home. All your stuff's here, all your comfort items, all the food you've stored, all the backup energy, everything that you've done to make your life resilient is in your home. The last thing you want to do is bug out. We do this because you might have to. When I was a kid, there was a sewage treatment plant not far from my house. They had a massive chlorine leak. It ended up not being a big deal, but they didn't know. And the uh, Duval County Sheriff's Department came to our door pounded on the door and said, get the out now. It was not, sir, we would like you to leave if it pleases you. It was, 
you're leaving now or we're going to drag you out of here. And they went to every, it was an apartment complex. They went to every apartment and said, get the fuck out. And we had to leave. So you might have to, but you only do it if you want, if you have to. So what we also need is ways to stay home. Now, that's, this could be, especially in places with a lot of storms and shit, tarps and tools. The fact that you have a hole ripped in your roof, a $15 tarp and a staple gun may not be a great repair, but it may keep you in your home. Being able to prop something up that otherwise would be a risk of collapse. We had, uh, when I lived in an apartment with Dorothy when I first met her, kind of unrelated but related, somebody with a car, somebody with a car obviously, right? Somebody fell asleep driving their car. And we lived on a second floor, and they slammed our stairs. Like, we're sitting in the apartment. The whole building rocks. We come out, and the stairs had slid down about a foot. And, like, can we go down or whatever? You know, I'm kind of, like, pushing with my foot. And basically figure out, like, it's not going anywhere. And the apartment management wanted us to go get a hotel for God knows how long. And what we ended up coming up with was went down to Home Depot, picked up some 4 by 4s and put in some temporary braces until the stairs could be replaced. Now, that's not directly applicable to what I'm talking about, but it could be a situation like that. So knowing how to do things to keep your home livable, and I really think it makes a lot of sense to have some form of a good portable shelter, whether it's a camper, a really great tent, anything, because you never know when you may have to rely on it or you may have to rely on it for other means. I used to have an RV. I don't anymore. My plan for the RV was, even when I wasn't using it, if there was ever like a real pandemic where people were really needing to be quarantined and stuff, and I had some member of my family, some members of my family, you know who you are, who do absolutely the square root of jack shit to be prepared. And they're like, oh, we're going to Uncle Jack's house. You're going to the camper, especially if you might be contaminated with something. Right. But maybe I would use it for myself. Right. So I think having a good tent, something that can be improvised into a shelter if necessary, because you never know when you might need it. There's your shelter taken care of security. This is the thing about security that you need to understand. It is the one that most people spend the least amount of time thinking about. And it's the one that most preppers spend the unrealistic amount of time thinking about to the point where they get ridiculous and you're a dude and you want to prep and you like lots of cool shit and black rifles and stuff like that. So you use preparedness as an excuse to your wife as to why you're spending money. We need a balance. But let's talk about why most people don't think about it enough. It is the form. It is the, the survival need that you can theoretically Go your entire life and never even consider and not have anything bad happen to you. And the reason is in a modern civilized society like we live in, unless you're in like, you know, downtown San Francisco or something, security is mostly provided for you by others. Law enforcement, the threat of law enforcement, just the fact that other people walking around in general don't take shit from people and don't let people be victimized again in most areas. So people that live in nice places, low crime rates, they can never think about security. You know the type. Well, what would ever happen here? 
Nothing would ever happen here. We have a gated community. La, 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 Karen. Okay, sure. But they could be right. And most people get through their life and nothing ever happens to them. No one ever physically attacks them. This is the other side of it. And this is why the people that maybe overdo it are not wrong. Completely anyway. If you need it, the amount of time you can do without security is a micro millisecond. The second someone's trying to kill you, if you have no means of defense, no situational awareness, whatever, you're gone. You're gone. You're dead. It, it, if somebody walks up behind you and hits you in the head with a ball-peen hammer, you're going to fall down on the ground and probably bleed to death and die. And you might not even know what happened. So that's situational awareness plus the means of defense. right? So what do we do for security? One, develop operational security and situational awareness. I do not consider it overkill that I do not take the same route every time I leave my house, even if I'm going to the same place. I am not a person that is easy to pattern. You can't say every day Jack leaves his house and drives this way down the Mile Bridge Road and goes out to you know this place and makes a right. Like even just taking my grandkids to meet their mommy at nighttime after they've been here all day, I take different routes. Right? Just that part of that is operational security. Another part of that, though, is situational awareness. If I always take the same route, some shit could be going on over here, but I always go that way. I don't know. So I'm always paying attention. Is how many houses are for sale? Is there like a big bunch of cars always showing up at this one place? Is it like that dude dealing dope or something? Like, I just want to know what's going on. I don't want to bother anybody, but I want to know what's going on. I want operational intelligence of what's going on around. Me. So you got to start there. Um, definitely consider being armed. You, again, that one second you needed it and you didn't have it, you're dead. The consequences are so much worse in general. The world is a harsh and violent place. Look what just went on in Israel. Look what just went on. I'm going to tell you right now, there are a lot of people that are in the Israeli military that have access to weapons when they're not on duty. A lot. Not enough. And the average citizen... It's not easy, like it is here, to just have a gun on you at all times in Israel. If, you know, 10% of the average Israelis walking around had a concealed handgun on them, there still would have been a horrible, horrible situation, but it would have been better. It would have been better. And you don't know when something like that can happen here or in a place that you happen to be in. You don't think that 50 people can get together and decide, hey, let's just go kill a bunch of people because we're pissed about whatever, insert reason here, insert group here. So that's that's when you're talking about a mass event. But individually, you took the wrong turn coming out of a building, going back to your car, you ended up in a place you look a little disoriented. Hey, man, what are you doing? I'll kick your ass. You're going to kick all of our and there's three dudes behind you. Make sure... If there's any way you can be armed, that you do what's necessary to be armed and become a responsible armed citizen. I'll leave it at that on the security issue. Avoid the three S's. Stupid places, stupid things, and stupid people. And when you put the three of those together, you have a real good chance of being known as one of three things. The defendant 
the patient or the departed. You hear me? You start going to stupid places and doing stupid things with stupid people, you have a real chance of being known as the patient in the hospital bed, the defendant in front of a judge, or the departed in a casket. Avoid stupid places, stupid people, and stupid things at all costs. That will solve 99% of the security needs that most people have in their life. It's amazing when people start talking about like confrontations. If you start asking them, well, how did this happen? Nine times out of ten, there I was minding my own business, getting drunk and mouthing people off and looking for a fight with my Marine buddies. Okay. Yeah. Nice job. Nice job. And I'll tell you a little side note there. Man, when I was in Panama, we had people like, because we had people come into country that were maybe temporarily there or whatever. There was a naval air station there. So we would have like a guy knew a guy he went to high school with and he joined the army and his buddy joined the Navy and he was in, in country and we would go out and party. We'd hit and go party with Marines. I'm just, I'm just saying like, especially off a ship in Panama, you just were asking to end up in a Panamanian jail, right? Don't do stupid places and stupid, stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. Not the Marines are stupid, but please put your crowns away, guys. Uh, <laughs> I had to take that shot. Uh, next, accept both the good and bad realities about security in that there are some things that you may have to do that are inconvenient, but they're necessary. And so I like to break security into protocols and procedures, right? Procedures are how you do a thing. Protocols are the order in which things are done and the way that things are done under a given situation. So right now, if I get up and go outside, I'm not like head on a swivel, multiple weapons, telling my wife I'm going outside before I do, maybe asking somebody to come with me. If my kids, my grandkids want to go play in the backyard right now where we can see them, they can go out there with the dog. They're good. If shit's going down, then the protocol changes. And so that means that security can be very valuable, but it also can be inconvenient, and that's okay. And you need to balance that without ruining your life. Moving on to energy. The first thing that you should do before you go out and buy like a whole house backup generator for $10,000 or whatever and put $40 million worth of solar panels on your house and start uh, making blimp driven wind machines or whatever, like build a blackout kit. That's step one, because you probably have most of what you need. A blackout kit should include batteries, rechargeable batteries, flashlights, everything that you need to get your shit together. At a most basic level, if the power goes off in the middle of the night when it's dark. So it's 930, you're sitting down, the kids are watching a movie, everybody's happy, you get up to go take a leak, power goes off. Now you're in the dark, can't see. So I recommend power failure lights, which look like night lights, but usually they're removable as a flashlight. And as soon as the power goes off to that outlet, that light comes on. So power, power failure lights like that. That way, when you're taking a pee in the bathroom and you got your thing out and, you know, you're going to turn around and bust your feet and it's actually dark in there because the door shut, that power failure light comes on. You can at least see where you're going. You can grab it. You go to your blackout kit and then you start putting your life back together. So if you were a few of the like E-Tech City lanterns, a radio that runs on batteries, an emergency crank radio that runs on also batteries is even better. All that stuff, put that together. 
And if you have a really big house, maybe you put together two of them, one in each side of the house. Maybe you have one in the house and one out in the garage or the shop, but have a blackout kit. This is the first place you go when the power is out and anything you need to start putting your life back together is in that blackout kit. It's not all your stuff. Your generator doesn't go in your blackout kit. Your blackout kit is so you can see what the you're doing as you're getting your generator up and running if you don't have like an automatic backup generator, which most people are not going to have. Then get an inverter, an extension cord, and splitters and practice using it from your car. 800-watt inverter clamped to the battery of your car will run your refrigerator. You can run your refrigerator for an hour, and then you can unplug it and run the cord out in the garage and run it for an hour, and you're good for another four or five hours if you don't keep opening the thing and looking at it. Right, An hour here, an hour there. You can't run everything, but you can run many things. You can recharge your, you know, with that inverter, you can charge your phone. You can charge rechargeable batteries, et cetera. And you can, I've talked about it. You can go to the site and look up inverter and find all kinds of information on what you can and can't do with an inverter. But to me, that is before a generator. Why? Because you can buy a decent 800 watt inverter for 50 to 80 bucks. You probably have some extension cords. Pick up one or two more. And get some little $2 three-way splitters, little orange hard splitters, the best ones. And there's all kinds of things that you can do. You can charge your laptop up. You, If you have, if there's still service, but you're just out of power, you know, that you need to test this. Because some will and some won't work with an inverter. But like my modem back here, I can run my modem off my inverter. It'll run just fine. And that means I can still have Internet access. I can also tether my cell phone to the cell tower, rather not tether, my teller, my tether my computer to my cell phone and use the cell. So, like, have all types of plans on what you're going to do, because having multiple options is best. Once you have an inverter, then I recommend either a generator or a battery bank or both. And generator is, to me, the num of all the things I have ever purchased in my life for preparedness. The thing that has done the most for me the most times consistently is a generator. Here, it's been a few times, especially with all the backup pumps and stuff I have out there for the fish. Um, but in Arkansas, man, it was probably four or five times a year we were running off generator power. Just where we were. We were in a place that had a lot of storms and things like that. And then we were at the end of the end of the end of the power network. So it was very conceivable that most of the city could be turned back on and there could be eight of us without power. Just our whole road didn't have power. Why? There's only eight people there. 20,000 people live in town. Well, we're going to take care of the 20,000 before the eight. I couldn't even come. I can't complain about that. So a generator. And once you have a generator, you need to store fuel. Now, I don't know if I started this. I definitely never saw anybody doing it before I started recommending it, but I recommend 12 cans of fuel. That's 60 gallons, five gallons a piece. And I recommend that you write with a big marker on each can, a number one through 12. And one is for January two is for February. You can figure the rest out, get up to 60 gallons. If it takes you six months, it takes you six months. If you buy one can, and fill it up once a month for a year until you get fine. Whatever your resources allow for. Have them in a row, 1 through 12. When you get to January, assuming you start in January, take the five-gallon can when you're going to fill your car or your truck up. Put the gas in your car or your truck. 
throw it in the back of the truck. When you go fill the truck up, fill the can up, put it back. February, do can two. March, do can three. April, do really easy not to forget. Somewhere around the first of each month when you're getting gas, dump the can in before you fill the vehicle up and fill the can up and put it back. You will always have 60 gallons of fuel on hand. It will never be more than a year old. You will never have a problem. You don't even need stable. I recommend it anyway, but you won't need it. One year, gas, fine, fine. If you get into a situation where you start drawing from your reserve gas, figure out what is the oldest gas I have, use it first. So if it's October and you've done October's can, the oldest gas you have is November's, then December's, then January's fourth. And then when the, when the situation passes, go fill the cans back up. Simple, and 60 gallons is plenty for most people. That way, if something goes wrong, you have extra gas for your car, you have extra gas for your generator, you're good to go. Your energy from a fuel standpoint is in really great shape. That way you're not worried about idling your car using that inverter because you have 60 gallons of fuel. And you'll probably find that your vehicle uses very little gas on idle. And by the way, you should probably figure out which of your vehicles uses the least gas on idle. And if you're going to use a vehicle as backup power source, use that one first. Yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on. Health and sanitation. Have a way to dispose of or deal with waste. So that could be things that are generally like burnable. You have a burn barrel. But the waste that we really have the biggest issues with in our society as humans that we don't think about is our poo and our pee. And the reason is you go take a poop and you go and somebody else takes care of it for you. That may not be the case in a grid down scenario. A composting toilet, something like that is a great idea. A outhouse. Sure. You have none of that. Okay. You're not going to think this is very Nice, but it'll work. A couple big jugs of the stuff that you put in RV or porta potty toilets. A couple jugs of that. Some heavy duty trash bags, a five gallon bucket, and a toilet seat. Just a cheap toilet seat. Now you can deal with it. Now you can deal with it. Now, if you live somewhere that you can be a cat and bury your waste, go ahead and do it. But a lot of us don't, especially a whole family in a house for a month, which can happen. So have some plan for that. You're probably not going to have solid waste removal. That's your garbage service during this period of time. Well, it builds up, but at least it doesn't stink. And that would be your worst case scenario is you're shitting in a bucket using RV uh, toilet treatment. But if you don't have anything else in place, it's better than the alternative, which is it piling up in your backyard. So have some plan for that. Dig a hole, fill it in in your neighbor's yard, builder of castle said. And, yeah, I think that, like, having a plan for what to do, but, like, go dig a hole. Go dig a hole now when you don't need it. See how long it takes, how deep you can go, how fast you can dig it. How long do you think it would last? Because, I mean, the way to do this with a backyard hole technique, right, you take take the five-gallon bucket cut the bottom off of it, put the toilet seat on the top of it, and put it over the hole. When you poop or pee in the hole, throw some throw some carbon in there, leaves, sawdust, whatever. When the hole is almost full, bury it and dig a new hole. But if that's your plan, you might want to check on whether or not it's feasible. Have you ever dug a hole in your backyard? A lot of people haven't, right? 
Black soldier flies, they seem to like animal manure. Black soldier flies will take care of it. They will. But you can't start your black soldier flies from nothing. You, it would have to be something you have ongoing. And what happens if it happens in the winter? And there are no black soldier flies because it's too cold out for them. What happens if it's in the winter and your hole digging plan won't work because the ground's frozen? We have a tendency that when the ground is frozen and it's really cold outside, that that is a time when a lot of freaking power failures happen and grid failures of one kind or another. You know, some of you live in a place where it's winter half the year, some it's three months of the year. That that was anywhere between 50 and 25% chance that you're going to need it when it's frozen outside. Have a plan for it. That's all I'm saying. Um, Keep a good medical kit on hand and know how to use it. Have all, like if you are on prescription medications, anything like that, Make sure you have at least 60 days of reserve, especially something that's you depend on it for life or lifestyle, right? Make sure you have at least 60 days. Talk to your doctor. Most doctors are understanding. Um, if you're trying to get an extra 60 days of, of oxycodone, that's probably not going to happen. But in most situations, especially with something you really need to get by on, that doctor knows if you build up that reserve, then when they go back to prescribing you a normal ration, so to say, they have nothing to worry about. Because if you were abusing it, you would run out and you'd ask them to do it again. And that's when they're going to tell you no. So and if your doctor won't work with you, get a new doctor. I say that about all things with doctors. Uh, Develop disaster time procedures and protocols for your health and sanitation. Like I said, procedure, how we do a thing. Protocol, when we do a thing in a certain order under a certain situation. And next Learn the most basic use of things like herbs and essential oils. There's a lot of things that you can see to yourself from a health standpoint, sanitation standpoint, et cetera. And then realize these things overlap. Number one cause of death in disasters in the world is not during the disaster. It's in the aftermath. And it's diarrhea and dysentery from contaminated water. So if we take care of the water need, The health need is propped up. Also, what's your diet like? I know you get tired of hearing it from me. Keto, paleo, primal, uh, carnivore. Pick one, right? And if not, if you're going to do some other form of diet, make sure that you're keeping yourself in optimum physical health. A healthy organism is better able to handle stress than an unhealthy one. So stay as healthy as you can. Diet goes a long way with that. So we're back to food on that. Next. You just keep going from there. That's your fun. If you do that, you'll be in good shape. But here's some places to go next and kind of concurrently as well. Cash. Carry cash and have cash at home as well. I don't care what anybody says. Well, you need silver. If you are bartering silver, things went really bad. Things went really bad. You will barter vodka before you barter silver. Not that you won't ever barter silver, but silver, gold, to me, PMs, they are more a long-term inflation hedge, a wealth assurance program. If we get into a point where we're literally like changing hands with silver for beans, bullets, and band-aids or something, we're in the end of the world as we know it scenario. We're in Patriots the Coming Collapse by James Wesley Rawls. Odds of that, very, very low. Odds that you might need a couple extra hundred bucks to get through something in cash because the store down the road, the machines are out and they're open, but they can't take a credit card pretty high. 
or that you might need help from somebody that's not exactly just your friend and you can say, here's 50 bucks, pretty high. So cash on hand. You need to make sure you have some cash. And I believe cash on your body, in your vehicle, something like that, plus some cash in the home, more in the home than on yourself. Because it's more, the further you go from home, the more at risk any possession you have is. Uh, next, insurance. I know it's mundane as shit, but keep it updated. You know, you know it's worse than having your house destroyed by a storm and then everybody survived, but your house is destroyed by a storm. All your stuff is like wet and damaged and messed up and you've lost is not having insurance on a house you lose that way. And having nothing left and owing money on the house, maybe because you did what we talked about yesterday. Some people are doing insurance on your life. You know, it's worse than losing your spouse, losing your spouse, believing your spouse was paying the life insurance bill and they weren't happened to one of my best friends. His wife always was like, do we have enough insurance? He's like, yeah, I got it taken care of through work or whatever. He ended up, he had $10,000 worth of insurance through work. That was it. Covered his funeral. She ended up almost losing her house. You know, fortunately, her kid was older. They only had one kid. They were able to make do. She had a good job. But, you know, had to get rid of the vehicle she had and get a different vehicle. Couldn't afford the payment. Uh, fortunately, his vehicle was paid for, so she got rid of her vehicle and took his for a while until she put her life back together. But, man, insurance, property, vehicle, life, all that shit. You need to have it. Because it's, it's you know, basically we're talking about today is being a responsible adult. Bank account. Not everybody's got a bank account. You should have two. And you should probably have a bank account and a separate bank. Totally different bank. A few hundred bucks in it. and Whatever kind of account you can have there where you're not getting charged just to have the account. That's what you need. Um, as you build up your wealth, maybe make some more deposits into it. The nice thing about a second bank account is we tend to not rate it. We tend to think a little harder before we use it to buy an easy chair or something like that. Now, why would you want that? Because I'll tell you why, because this has happened to people in the United States and the UK recently. They go to the bank. I'd like to deposit this check. I'm sorry. You don't have an account here anymore. Your account's frozen. Why? I am not at liberty, sir, to tell you why. We've all seen this. It's happened to people. They, the bank literally will say, like, I can't. I can't give you your money. I can't cash a check for you. I can't do anything for you. Why? Can't tell you. Is it conceivable that something gets triggered like that and you could end up with both bank accounts frozen? Yeah, but you have a better chance of having one of them still operational. Another way to handle this, especially if you're married, joint accounts are great, but maybe the second account is in one party's name. And that way, if something goes haywire and it's attached to your name, you have that redundancy, something like that. But at least two, at least two bank accounts. Um, next, documentation. Build a documentation pack. Again, just go to the survivalpodcast.com search bar documentation. It covers everything. When I did that, uh, there's a master gunnery sergeant uh, who was listening to me way back, way back in the day. He said, that's the most important episode you've ever done. He's like, there is literally nothing 
that you did not include in that episode. It's things like your bank account information, your insurance information, uh, contacts of people that you would rely on, including things like vendors that would do things like clear your driveway out while it's full of trees. Well, why would you do that? I got a chainsaw. I don't need that. Okay, when the tree fell and went through the roof of your house, it injured you and you're not capable of doing it. When the tree fell, you're not home and your wife doesn't know how to use a chainsaw. There's a lot of reasons. You don't think you need that one? Don't include it. I recommend that you do. Well, when that happens and people are trying to get help, all those services are overwhelmed and they won't be able to help you anyway. No, the person that calls first is the first person to get help. The person that's organized that has a documentation package is the first person that gets in contact with someone and they're at the front of the line. Because the reason they can't help you is they're helping somebody else. Well, how'd that person get them? Same thing with hotels. Well, on your evacuation routes, maybe you have a plan, I'm going to stay in a hotel. You should have several hotels in the area that you're evacuating to. Their pet policy, right? All their policies, what they are, the number to call to make reservations. Well, when there's a disaster, all the hotels fill up. Who is in that hotel? The person that called first. So you could literally be in the car hauling ass and have your spouse making phone calls to get you in somewhere without sitting there trying to use the Internet that's not working to look them up and further and further out. And there's a bunch more that goes into it. That documentation package, again, there should be a copy of it in both vehicles. If you're a two-vehicle two household, if you have children that drive, they should have a copy. Why? When your 15, 16, 17-year-old daughter is freaking out, Daddy, I don't know what to do. Pick the book up off the floor. Turn to page 12. Go there. Dad will meet you there. The minute you have a plan, people calm the fuck down. Why do you think people follow someone in a burning building who has no authority, no badge, no nothing? Because they sound like they know what the fuck they're doing. It calms people. And when they can look and they're not confused, you know, you know where so-and-so is. I don't remember. Open to page eight. All the books are the same. When you make a change, you change all of them at the same time. Put dividers in whatever works for you. Be Monica from freaking friends with organization with this. And being able to get in touch with that other party and say, this is what you do. And having gone through it and them going, I can't even get it, but I know where to go. I know where to go. That's so important. So build a documentation package. That's pretty much free. That's printer ink and paper and a notebook cover, right? Um, communication, weather radio, battery radio, TV antenna. Make sure you have an antenna. And most places then you need a digital antenna, but all the ones you buy now are digital anyway. So that you can unplug your cable that's not working, plug the digital antenna into the back of your television, right? Or have a port for it and just switch to that input. That's what mine has. And for instance, I can get like 28 different channels, like half of them are Spanish, but 28 different channels I can get just on a digital antenna on my television here in the Dallas area. Why is that important? So you can watch TV? Yeah, maybe. It's really important so you can stay in touch with information. What's going on, right? One of the most valuable things about it for me is if we lose power during a storm outbreak here, I can get the local news on that's tracking the storm and telling me what to expect. And we've used that several times in the last few years where we've had a power outage, tornadic storm events going on, can't turn on the TV, you know, um, 
but we can plug that antenna in. We have a generator to run the TV set, and boom, we're operational, and we're watching and seeing what's going on in real time. That's And that makes you a lot more confident in your decision-making because otherwise you're sitting there in the dark. Everything's going to shit, and you don't know what's going on where you might need to take cover or you might be able to go, look, there's nothing. Like, it's already past us. We can relax and deal with other shit. So valuable to have that. Um, make sure you have your cell phone backup battery power for your cell phone. Anchor's what I recommend, but I really don't care what you have. Have multiple ways to charge your phone. Never let your phone go dead. When you're not using your phone, plug it in. Plug it in. Your phone should be at 100% most of the time. You get in your car, plug your phone in. You're at home, plug your phone in. It's right there. You can reach over and pick it up if you need it. You're at the office, put it on your desk, put it on silence, it doesn't bother anybody, plug your phone in. Keep your phone freaking charged. People think, well, that's, you know, well, if the grid goes down or whatever. But what about when the grid, like we've been talking about today, what about when the grid is not down? What about when you can't get service, but you can whip out 12 text messages, put your phone back in your pocket, go on, and whenever that phone picks up a signal, those messages will go out, and the people that you're trying to get in touch with will hear from you and know, even if you don't get two-way communications at that point. You need a method of comms. Beyond, I have a ham radio. Great. Good for you. 1% of people will do that. The other 99, you need to have. I really recommend you set up a family Zello channel. It will probably work most of the time. Okay. And even if family members don't really want to use it or anything, let me see your phone. I'll install it for you. Let me show you how to turn it on. If shit goes sideways and we all need to get on, just open this app and push this button and tell us you're online. Do that for me. Can you let me do that and, and just leave it on? Just don't take it off. You can leave it closed. Incredibly valuable to have that multi-line communication available. One message hits everybody. Extremely valuable and free. And I don't believe in not doing things that most likely will work that are free to do. I mean, it doesn't make any sense not to. It's like the water thing. Well, I want to have, like, all this special water reserve tanks. Great. Get there when you can. But until then, get the soda bottles, fill them up with water, and have the freaking water. You know, I want to have, like, this major radio network for my group. Great. Until then, or even in addition to that, install the freaking Zello app and get a family channel put together. If you have a group have a group channel and a family channel. And by the way, if you've never used Zello, they will work at the same time. Ecomal says FRS and GMRS can, uh, uh, handholds work amazingly well. They do, and I recommend those too. We just did a show not long ago with a guy on all that kind of stuff on radio. Radio Made Easy. If you go to the survivalpodcast.com, search for Radio Made Easy, you'll be able to listen to that episode with Evan. I can't think of his last name now. It was really good. And I'm not crapping on that. I'm just saying your Aunt Matilda's not going to do it. Your Aunt Matilda's not going to do it. Your Aunt Matilda that lives two counties away isn't going to be able to, to communicate with you with ham radio. But she can use Zello. And if you have broader communications through ham, GMRS, whatever, then you can relay information. So you have – think of it as, like, technical levels. Here's an – when I was in the military, I was a mechanic – I was a, a, a second shop level mechanic, meaning I would put in transmissions, change parts, things like that. Higher level work, like rebuilding an engine, would be like third or fourth shop. And so 
I would assess a vehicle and say, I can't, even if I know how, I'm not authorized to do this, and I would send it up the chain. So we can do that with comms where people that are higher-level comms technicians are able to then relay information through other means that are outside of that level of communications. Simple. And a 72-hour kit. Everybody should have a 72-hour kit. Everybody should have a 72-hour kit. Everybody. My six-month-old? Yes. Is your six-month-old included in everybody? Everybody. What is a 72-hour kit? A 72-hour kit is not a bag designed for you to go fight the Red Dawn War. It is a bag of stuff designed to keep you in relative comfort for three days. That's 72 hours. Let's call it a bug-out bag. And skip the tactical shit in the beginning. I want you to start off with this. I am going to have to grab a bag for myself and one for every member of my family. I don't care if this is your plan or not. This is how to think about it. Okay. I am going to have to go to a high school gymnasium shelter. They're going to give me a cot, no pillow, no blanket, no energy, no electricity, no nothing. They're going to give me a cot next to 20 other stinking people, 200 other stinking people. And I'm going to be there with my kids for two days, three days, something like that. After that, I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't know where. What do what's in that bag? It's probably not a Glock 19. Now, if you have a Glock 19, you probably own it because you carry it anyway. That's fine. But my point is, it's probably not a belt of ammo for a freaking M60 machine gun. It's probably not uh, an entrenching tool, right? It's probably, number one, clothes to change into because you don't want to wear the same sticking clothes for three days. It's probably basic hygiene, right? It's probably some basic snack food that's going to be fine even though it's not in a refrigerator. It's going to be the stuff that's going to keep you, like, it's like going camping or more like going on a sleepover at a friend's house. What would you take? Overnight bag, three days worth. Yeah? Why? Because you probably have enough stuff in your house that you already have a bag you can use and improvise for every single member of your family. And if not, pretty inexpensive. You don't need a badass, super badass tactical bag for this. Eventually, you might have one, but if you have nothing, use what you have. If you go in your closet, your kid's closet, their drawers, etc., you're going to find a whole bunch of clothing that's perfectly serviceable that you never wear. Three shirts, three pairs of underwear, three pairs of socks, one pair of shorts, one pair of pants. Put them in the bag. How far have you just come? How much have you spent? No money. You've just made space. Right? You just made space, and you do that for everybody in the family. Then you start thinking, what, what do the kids eat? What do I eat? What's easy to eat? What lasts a long time? Food goes at the top of the bag, and when you add stuff to the bag, you take the food out, and you put the food at the top of the bag. Because of all the things in the bag, the thing that most needs to be rotated out is the food. So you take common food that you would normally snack on, and now you're going to go to a baseball game or something. You're going to take some snack food with you. Take it out of the bag. Put new food in the bag. Simple. Easy. Right? Simple and easy. No problem. Right? Build that up. Then if you want to expand it, I, you can go to the go to the survivalpodcast.com, put in bug out bag. 
I've gone through like everything you can think of putting into a bug out bag. And you, what you'll learn when you do that is I ain't going to put all this shit in one bag. You might spread some of it out amongst the family and some of it you'll say, that's not for me. You have to be able to move. Then we can build something larger, like a vehicle kit bag that we don't have to put on our back. But first, every person in the family should have a bag that they know where to go get. If that sheriff's deputy comes to your house, bangs on the door and says, get out now, because it can happen. If it's happened before, it will happen again. It may not be you, but it could be. That's it. If you do those things, you are so far ahead of 95% of people, and the most important thing in the world will happen to you. It will be uh, available to you if you end up in a disaster, and that is the ability to fucking think. The ability to think. And if you've never had any training that stresses that ability to think, you may not realize how hard it is to think in that situation. One of the courses I took when I was in the Army was called Combat Lifesavers. And they obviously can't, like, stab a guy in the neck and have him bleeding to death, right, and then say, if you don't save him, he's going to die, right? That would not be – it might be effective training, but it's not moral training. But what they'll do is they'll have a guy with an injury. When you're getting tested, you'll come up to treat the injury. And this course, you're not trying to be a doctor. You're trying to keep him alive long enough to get him in a helicopter the hell out. That's it. It's just what can you do to keep this guy alive? for the next 10 minutes that otherwise he would die. And one person's there grading you and they'll give you the feedback. You hear this, you felt that whatever, because maybe the guy's supposed to be unconscious and can't give you information. So you need to know when you check this, did you feel a pulse or whatever? And he's just telling you, giving you the feedback and grading you. There's another instructor. He's in your ear and he might be screaming at you. You're killing him. He's going to fucking die because you're too stupid to know you're doing the wrong thing. And he'll say that when you're doing the right thing and stress you. Or he might get in your other ear and start whispering to you. Are you sure that's right? Are you sure? Whispering like Biden, like creepy Biden sniffing you, right? Stress you out. And every place you go, every, every station you get graded on, they'll change that stress level. And when you can do something at 3 o'clock in the morning in freezing rain, with a flashlight in your mouth, right? You have developed the ability to do it, right? You have developed the ability to save, to do that thing and to do it well. And until you can do it like that, you don't really know how to do it. You don't really know how to do it. So we need to develop those skill sets until we can do them cold and we have a duty, in my opinion, to do this. Everything I've just talked about, this is how I honestly feel. There is no way that we should be able to spend somewhere between ten dollars and $30,000 per student, depending on where you are in the United States and what grade level we're talking, for 13 years, K through 12, and have young people come out of high school and not know any of this. It's a sin as a society, in my opinion. This is just being a responsible adult. And if there was one thing I could say to people to kind of break through why this is important, why you should care about this. If you won't help yourself, why would anybody else? We have a society of people that just expect somebody will take care of it. Well, the real world doesn't work that way, honey. 
it doesn't work that way at all, sweetie. All right. You, you could end up in situations where no one gives a shit that you're about to die or that somebody you care about is about to die or be seriously injured or starve or dehydrate or have an injury that's painful that you could have done something to mitigate, but you don't know how and you don't have what you need. It's up to us to do this for ourselves. Let's take a few questions and then we will wrap up. Ghoulie, thanks for the $5 super chat. Ecomouth says, how many people have considered geolocating supply caches with a topo map and eight-digit confirmation? Yeah, like supply caches are a really great idea. Say that's an advanced strategy. That's certainly not a fundamental thing. And just remember something about this. Like, There's a lot of stuff that's out there that is kind of TV movie oriented. There's nothing wrong with caching some supplies at another location. But if you do that, those are supplies that you own that you don't have where you are. So you could end up with all of this stuff distributed and then you need it and you're stuck at home. So balance is the key there. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm just saying balance is the key. Backwood says, not related to discussion, but I'm heading to Texas for a few days to visit some family. Is there anything worth seeing or doing around Dallas or Tyler or anywhere in between? Uh, I don't, that, that really is outside discussion. Uh, the Dallas Zoo is pretty badass. Dallas Botanical Gardens are pretty badass. There's also, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a thing in Dallas that's like an aquarium and like birds and like it's an indoor zoo almost. I can't remember what it's called, but it is really freaking cool. Uh, I'm not big on the Dallas side. I am a Fort Worth guy and I've lived in Fort Worth for the last 10 years. And even before that, I've spent most of my time on this side of the Metroplex. So um, not really sure what to tell you on that. Builder of castles, security, walking with sort of friends, usually women, I see something that says, leave this area now. I tell the women we need to leave, and they're like, why? Are you paranoid? What should I do? Uh, tell them you're, you're fucking leaving. Trust your gut. Uh, many years ago, I had this happen with my wife, Dorothy. I was wearing a really nice watch and my ring, and, you know, I was dressed nice. And we parked in downtown Allentown. And Allentown, Pennsylvania, can be nice or shitty, depending on where you are. We were kind of in the shitty part. And what happened is we were going to a store, and we ended up parking, like, several blocks from the store by accident. And we're like, screw it, we'll just walk. And we're walking, and a group of young men were standing there. And the one guy looks at me. He looks he makes eye contact with my watch. My ring looks me up and down and looks at me. And does kind of like a, like, are you sure? This dude was no threat to me at all. I want to be clear. This man was not intimidating me. He was giving me the look of, dude, really? I wouldn't do this if I were you. And I spun my wife around by the elbow, and I took no bullshit from her. I believe that marriage done right, if you're a leader like you should be as a husband, is a 51% dictatorship. You get 1% of the dictatorship, and you be better be careful when and how you use it, but that is a situation that I would use it in, right? And, and I, I always say trust your gut because most of the time when you don't trust your gut, you end up regretting it if you're around, if you're not known as the departed thereafter. Um, Ecomouse says, how many can honestly say they can locate, set up, and secure a tent 
to the ground in the dark by feel and by knowledge and adding clement weather uh, for further understanding. Yes, setting up a tent in the dark, in the cold, in the rain is not fun. And I can tell you for a fact that it's not fun because I watch it happen every year here. Not every year. Most years it will rain the day people show up for my workshop. Most years. It just does. Wednesday night it rains. And people get here after dark and it's raining and they have others with them to help them. And there are people that know how to set up a tent. They've done it before. They have people around them that know how to do it that have done it before. And it's still a real pain in the ass. So, yeah, um, my my further advice on that is if you have like a tent that you're planning on using for shelter, unless you absolutely have to. Don't even do it in the dark and in inclement weather. You're likely to end up with the interior wet, et cetera. If you can get by, sleep in a car, do whatever until it's light out and you can see what you're doing, wait. That would just be my particular advice. One more question here from the Rogue Banshee. Do you recommend a 72-hour kit, a get-home bag, or a combination of the two for everyday car kit? So I recommend a car kit that is independent of your 72-hour kit, and that should have, with your 72-hour kit, all that you need to get home, okay? Uh, And it should add enough to support you when you're out and you can't get home as well. So if you um, go to survivalpodcast.com and put in vehicle kit, it'd probably be the easiest way to find an episode on what I recommend to keep in your vehicle Uh, because I can't – that's a show. That's a show, right? So I can't do it here at the end, an hour and 30 minutes in. I am ready to wrap up. want to remind you guys again, um, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can really support us is become a member of the Members Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get discounts that are available only to members and a bunch of other really cool stuff. If you're on the video right now, this is a list of the companies that do discounts for us. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox is no longer a, a sponsor, but right now the discount code's still working, so I'll leave them in there. I'm not going to take it away. Uh, Renegade Butcher, Start Night Embassy Service, TSP Swag, Fish Newer Fertilizer, Food Forest Farms, Mile High Distilling, Akira Botanicals, uh, Ridge Wallet, GunAdapters.com, ButcherBox, Leather, OMG Leatherworks, Eden Brothers Seeds, NE Seeds, Safe Castle Royal, KnifeKits.com, uh, Berkey Guy Discount, uh, High Mowing Organic Seeds, Victory Seed Company, uh, MT Knives, BulkAmmo.com, Nodak Arms, JM Bullion, Lenwood Leather. There's tons of companies. Iron Edison Batteries, Tactical Wood Gas, uh, Darby Simpson Consulting, Doom and Bloom does a great discount. Harvest Eating, uh, Marsh Creek Farms, the Tool Merchant, Fishing Yoyito. We have just a ton of discount vendors. And if you use the discounts, your membership will pay for itself. And it, again, it comes out to a whopping 20 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth a couple dimes an episode, consider becoming a member of the MSB. The other way is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. This price alert just came by me today. The Walt has their cordless jigsaw on sale today for 138 bucks. Now this is the bare tool, tool model. This would be for you folks that are already on the DeWalt platform. Many of you are. I love DeWalt, and I'll tell you the thing about the jigsaw. It is the power tool when it comes to cordless power tools that everybody buys last. And there's the reason why. What does everybody buy first unless they buy a a multi-tool kit? They buy a drill. If I have a drill, I have the number one tool that I reach for every time. So I buy a drill, 
And then I realized even though a drill will drive, I probably want an impact tool because an impact tool is just better for driving screws and bolts and stuff like that. Or maybe I buy a combo kit out of the gate. Then I realized I need to cut shit. So I'm probably going to buy a circular saw, a skill saw, right? And I'm going to buy a sawzall. Once I have those tools, I can do most of anything I need. The next thing most people buy is probably going to be an angle grinder, right? Because now that we have cordless angle grinders, there's so much they'll do for you. And you don't use a jigsaw that often until you need one, until you're trying to cut that cope into a piece of plywood or something. Like you don't even realize. And then once you have one, you realize how valuable they are. So it is usually the tool to get last. That's why it's great that they're available as a bare tool on sale for 138 bucks. I have seen this product sell for less, but not much. I think the cheapest I've seen it for is 110. It's normally $205. This is a 32% discount. And when DeWalt puts things on sale, they generally don't stay on sale for very long. So you might want to pick this up today if you don't already own one. And uh, no, that's not true, Andy. Let's talk about that real quick. Andy says DeWalt was bought by Black & Decker. They're basically the same thing now. They were bought by Black & Decker. They are not basically the same thing now. They are not. Their batteries are not interoperable, et cetera. Now, I will say this. What the DeWalt brand has in it now, since the Black & Decker bought them, is their lowest end shit pretty much is the same. So you can buy a bare tool drill, DeWalt drill, for about 35 bucks. okay? It's not one of the high-end brushless DeWalt drills. That pretty much is black. But when you look at the brushless Max DeWalt brand, yeah, that is not the same as Black & Decker at all. The end, infinity. <laughs> anyway, with that, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow's show will be expert counsel. Uh, we will not have a show Friday, and we will not have one Monday as I will be driving back from Camden. So I will see you guys again on Tuesday. That will be our next live stream. Take care, guys. Have a great day. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.